Science Talk will begin after this short message. Hi everyone, I'm Andrea Alfano. And I'm Brian Stallard. And we're the hosts of Base Pairs, the podcast about the power of genetic information from Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. The stories we tell involve some big issues that may seem totally unrelated to genetics, like climate change. We'll tell you how genetic tools could help in the fight against climate change a little later on in this episode of Science Talk. Stay tuned. Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on August 16th, 2018. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... Imagination deserves to come back to the forefront of research and concern in psychology and philosophy, and I would say even in neuroscience. It fell out of the picture because of the rise of behaviorism. That's Stephen Asma. He's professor of philosophy at Columbia College, Chicago. He was on the podcast last Halloween to talk about his 2009 book on monsters, an unnatural history of our worst fears. He's also the author of two newer books, The Evolution of Imagination, which came out in June 2017, and Why We Need Religion, which was published in May 2018. I was in Chicago recently, so I met with Asma in his office to talk about his latest works. You write in The Evolution of Imagination, we live in a world that's only partly happening. We also live in co-present simultaneous worlds made up of almosts or what-ifs and maybes. So let's start there and, and then get into the whole book. Yeah, that's great. I, I, um, I, I've done a lot of uh, sort of, as a philosopher, thinking about uh, consciousness. And also um, I've been studying sort of uh, neuroscience and cognitive science for many years, but I've also had this long-standing interest in things like Buddhism, uh, which in many ways is kind of an early psychology theory. Um, some people think of it as religious, but it's if you look at the Buddha's writings, it's clear that he's just developing a psychology. And so one of the things you you learn in Buddhism is you're trying to be have your mind in the present moment as much as possible, you know. But really, uh, most of us spend our lives not in the present moment, um, sort of looking at our perceptions. We're actually worrying about uh, what we're going to say to our boss or um, we're sort of planning what we're going to have for dinner or we're thinking about what we said yesterday and how that was received by others. And it's almost like you've got a second universe running in your head in parallel with the actual universe that you're moving through. And sometimes you're so immersed in that second universe of representations, ideas, narratives, that you don't even, you're not even aware of what you're doing. You're just sort of on autopilot. You're driving your car, you're walking down the street, but really you're living in this imaginative world more, I think, more dominantly. And that was before we had screens to distract us everywhere we go. Yeah, exactly. I think it's got to be I – don't, I don't know if people are working on this, but uh, I would imagine the younger generation, because we're still tethered <laughs> – I'm an old-timer. I'm still tethered to the old world where I got these narratives from books or comic books. But screens, I got to think – well, this is an interesting case. Are they amplifying imaginative work or are they preventing imaginative work? Because one of the things that they, you know, one of the criticisms that people are starting to see now is that if you're always on a screen, and you'll see this like on public transportation, uh, everybody's on a screen, then you're not sort of doing as I did, and I, I suspect many other people did in the old days, is looking out the window 
and, you know, imagining Godzilla coming into the harbor or whatever it was, there was a lot of imaginative work that we did before our eyes were locked into these screens. So that's an interesting issue. Near the beginning of the book, you make some kind of reference to the power of the blank slate where your mind then has a chance to go through a bunch of different permutations and choose one. Maybe it's when you're talking about improvisation in music. And uh, if you're constantly on the screen, then you're probably keeping that from happening. Yeah, I think that's probably right. And there's even some growing neuroscience to suggest that that might be true because you've got these, you know, these two different, um, well, many, many systems obviously in the brain, but two that are getting a lot of attention now are the default mode network and then so what's oftentimes called the task positive network. Sometimes it's it goes by another name, but salience network. Um, but it looks like these are specific areas of the brain that light up, you know, on fMRI machines when you're engaging in certain kinds of activities. And when you're trying to do something like, I don't know, uh, it could be simple like uh, dig a ditch or complete a form or write something, um, in, you know, even sort of solve something navigational on your phone, your brain is in this task positive network. And then when you stop sort of trying to solve a specific problem, the brain switches over to this default mode network, which is a little more inward. It's not sort of directed out to the world. It's more rumination. And it's sort of where uh, I think this a lot of this imaginative work happens. If you're constantly on your phone, what they're suggesting is you're never shifting back into this default mode network, which is where most of the really creative stuff happens. That's where that's the kind of idea blender, you know, that uh, that we need to go to in order to get fresh ideas. And we may be preventing ourselves, particularly younger people, from going to that uh, mode of consciousness. And that might be bad for the imagination down the road. Talk a little bit about what you talk about the book about the body. We're not just this disembodied brain. We're a, we're a body, mm -hmm. and the body is a product of evolution, as is our social construct. Uh, for the, I, I just mean that in general, human beings evolved in a social environment, and we still maintain a lot of the behaviors and actual physical physicality that came from growing up as a species in that situation. So before I go on for too long, talk about how the body has been neglected as uh, part of the imaginative um, engine and what you mean by um, bringing it back into a consideration of improvisation and imagination. That conversation has been missing. Most people have been thinking about the imagination as like ideas in your head, like you were saying, uh, you know, if you concoct some wonderful scenario in your mind's eye, you're imaginative. But really, if you think about the evolution of imagination, it must have been that we were doing our first improvisational and imaginative work with the body. It would have been before language. It would have been before concepts. And so this leads you uh, to sort of think about dance, for example. And one of our earliest uh, maybe artistic um, creations might have been tribal dancing. A lot of times people think about the cave paintings of the upper Paleolithic, um, and that's great. But that's 
you know, maybe 40, 50,000 years ago. Dancing probably goes back way before that, possibly even to the early Pleistocene period. So that could be two million. Yeah, well, let the the sirens are coming. This is an issue we deal with in New York a lot. When uh, at Chicago, we're, we're improvising. We're, we're in Chicago, exactly, and 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 it's okay. So, um, so two million years ago, we're talking pre-Homo sapien. Yeah, uh, other Homo or even maybe uh, different genus, uh, but still that that impulse, the dancing, the imagination, the improvisation is there already. Yeah, I think that if you look at um, uh, Homo erectus, for example, you've got a social creature um, that was probably similar to early Homo sapiens in terms of small band families, nuclear families, small band groups, 30, 50 people. And there were ways in which they would have demonstrated to their competitors that they were a, a group to be reckoned with. And we think anthropologists suggest that dance originally was a way of demonstrating to your opponents, hey, we're together. You know, this group can get, you know, can do these moves together. Um, it's we, a West Side Story. Exactly. Going back That's, two right. Million years. <laughs> That's right. Because you can't, you're not just saying we're a, we're a good fighting team. You're showing them that you can be together on this stuff. Now, how did that stuff evolve? It had to be like certain kind of movements and then you're improvising and adding sequences, you know, within sequences. And um, this I think is exciting because human beings can do this thing that uh, we call entrainment, which is if I start clapping my hands together, you know, like this, that you can quickly fall in with me mm -hmm. and we can have a whole room clapping to some, you know, blues or soul music. But other animals can't do this. Mm. They're very bad at it. And it suggests that there may be sort of um, brain prerequisites to this kind of all getting together and synchronizing and simulating each other. And I think the origins of imagination go back into that kind of embodied simulation system. I can copy what you're doing. You can copy what I'm doing. Other mammals can do that too. But once you start adding things like social complexity and language, now the simulations start getting better and better. So even the play among kids gets much more sophisticated than the kind of play that you get in animals. In, in our closest relatives in primates, you get rough and tumble play. Mm -hmm. You know, juveniles will wrestle each other. But uh, once you get a simple system like language and once you get kind of a, a long, safe childhood like you have in Homo sapiens, now you get people, you know, playing cops and robbers and, you know, mm -hmm. cowboys and Indians and this kind of stuff. Uh, well, early, you know, Paleolithic well, we versions. Kids, yeah. 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 You don't play, probably don't play cops and robbers, robbers and cowboys and Indians anymore. And Paleolithic version, of course. Right. Yeah. Very different. Um, I've, I think I've had a couple of experiences usually playing sports where I physically did something that I didn't know I knew how to do. Yeah. And I think sports and music and what else is where you're going to find this kind of thing. Those are great examples, sports and music. Um, so when you improvise in music or in sports, uh, or really like we're doing now in forming sentences, we're using the sort of rules of grammar and semantics and syntax, but we've appropriated those rules into this kind of embodied cognition. So I don't have to like think, am I applying the rule correctly when I say this to you? I just do it. 
through practice and habituation. And this is true in um, jazz improvisation too. What you've done is you've mastered certain scales and certain chords, and it's true in sports as well, but then you have to apply them in real time. So you're composing and performing at the exact same time, and that's different than other forms of um, like music or creativity. And what I'm suggesting in this book is that when you do that, if I do that today, I'm actually probably experiencing something like what our ancestors experienced when they were thinking and moving through their environment with a kind of early pre-linguistic cognition because it must have been something like this. Especially when you're playing music uh, and you're improvising, it really is pre-linguistic or extra-linguistic. I mean, you're, you're listening to each other and and you know when something feels good or or right, for lack of a better word. I don't know how you can say something's yeah. right, but it feels right yep. in the moment. And there's no language. I mean, the music kind of is the language. That's right. And you're connecting with each other on a mental level. Yeah. And this, But you're also, I mean, playing a musical instrument is a physical activity. You're not... Uh, it's not coming straight out of your brain. It's coming out of your fingers, which have long experience with, you know, interacting with your instrument. It's it's coming out of the way you move your body. I mean, mm -hmm. we've all seen musicians who look like they're in a in a an ecstatic trance right. on stage, and yeah. in some way, maybe they are. Yeah, that's true, and it shows you that um, as a musician, you're actually working in real time to solve, you know. Problems, And I think this is a better way of understanding human cognition generally. What happens is people in psychology and philosophy and even in, even in brain science areas will talk about the mind like it's a set of beliefs. And you hold these beliefs that are like propositions and you, you access them and you use them to make predictions about the world. But that's got to be a very late arrival in terms of the evolution of mind. That could only be there long after language has given us like syntax and semantics and a system of language. Um, all through hominid history, and even I would argue human history, it would have been like you're describing, which is you've got to figure out how to get across this river, and you don't know how to do it given what's around, and there's crocodiles in this river. And, you know, thinking is a way of acting better in your environment. And beliefs, this is something that pragmatists understood, the sort of American philosophers like William James and John Dewey. They said, you know, beliefs really are sort of guides to action. And if we forget that, then we get stuck in this kind of headspace. And my, I'm trying to sort of show that the, the true roots of mind are embodied because you're always trying to solve a, a problem, but also it's really interwoven with your emotional life. Um, and this is another thing that people sort of forget when they're doing sort of cognitive science. They forget about the emotional brain, which is, you know, if if the limbic system is as old as mammals, then it's probably something like 200 million years old. Whereas the neocortex and certainly the linguistic, you know, prefrontal cortex would be somewhere between, you know, 50,000 to maybe maybe half a million or a million years old. That's yeah. nothing. We just slapped that on. Right, exactly. Yesterday. Yes. <laughs> so um, the evolution of imagination, 
What do you want readers to take from the book and why did you feel compelled to write the book? I think um, imagination deserves to come back to the forefront of um, research and concern in psychology and philosophy and I would say even in neuroscience. It fell out of the picture because of the rise of behaviorism. Um, the mind sort of fell out of the picture uh, because we thought, well, we can only study behaviors of animals and humans and we can't know what's happening in the mind. So it really – it disappeared. But then when the mind came back during the cognitive revolution, it came back on the model of a computer. Mm. So computational mind, of course, very popular and did great things. I mean that thinking of the mind that way has been productive. But I think the the downside here is that we've ignored the imagination and the imagination is in many ways the great connector between the perception and the emotional body and these higher level abstract forms of thinking that we recognize, you know, things like conceptual knowledge and math and even being playing chess, you know. That's a sort of level of cognition that's very high and abstract. But it's, in some sense, it's wired. It has roots all the way down into this older brain and older embodied system. And I think imagination is a great way to get at that stuff. And um, so for those reasons, I'm hoping that I, I'm trying to sort of spawn a new interest, you know, on the part of the profession and the disciplines to look at it and not be – and not think of it as a kind of folk – category of the mind mm -hmm. because we we think of imagination in popular culture as either oh it's like a a miracle some muse comes into you and you just um channel some mystical energy and we've romanticized our artists to such a degree that we think of you know the the van goghs and the you know the einsteins and the um picassos as basically just opening up a you know a current and mm -hmm. it's a mystery to them how it happens. Well, that that mystifies the imagination. That's not really a helpful way to get at it. And then the alternative is you'll see people like in evolutionary psychology um, or in cognitive science thinking about the mind as a set of modules that are preset to solve specific problems. And that, I think, is also incorrect. And the imagination could provide us as an alternative, as all with an alternative way of thinking about the mind that would be very productive for future research. And for a lay audience? Well, I think um, what's fun about the book is I try to start every chapter with like, um, I'm telling this story about sort of being on stage in a band and what it's like to perform for people. Yeah, you've played with some some of the great blues artists yeah, I've been lucky. I've played uh, many times with uh, Bo Diddley before he passed away. I was uh, when he came to Chicago, they would call me, and I would be in his house band. So that I did that many times, and I played with Buddy Guy. And what instrument again? A guitar. Guitar. Yeah, and that's the kind of thing. Like I remember meeting Bo Diddley, and it was uh, I tried to to like connect with him and say, I know these songs, we could do this, but he just, he just shows up on the night of the performance and just storms the stage and that's the first time i meet him and he's i'm like what do you want to do what key and he just starts playing are you hanging on by your fingernails oh my god yeah it was so stressful even now i'm sweating when i think about it but that's the kind of thing i have to figure out what key is he in what yeah. chord is he playing what's the rhythm here but then like you were saying earlier music is its own language so you begin to feel like okay this is right 
And then you know, there's a language for this. We call it like you're in the pocket. Yeah. And when you're in the pocket, you know everybody's congeal, you know, gelling like an organism. So, so I think uh, I would like the lay audience to be able to read this book and see that they too are master improvisers. It's not just this thing that like professional jazz people do. That even like you know haggling at a marketplace for a good deal is a kind of improvisation, or having a good conversation with somebody is a good improvisation. Or, so, I, or making a meal, or exactly cooking. Exactly. I mean, you might even have a recipe in front of you, but you don't quite follow it 100%. Right. Um, buddy, I want to complete the list, though. You played with Bo Diddley, Buddy Guy, which yes. is amazing. B.B. Uh, King. B.B. King, yes. Who else? Uh, I played with a bunch of uh, people that I don't know whether uh, listeners will be, be as familiar with, but uh, the Queen of the Blues, Coco Taylor, uh, Lonnie Brooks, uh, Junior Wells. Junior Wells, uh, yeah. wow. I had some lucky breaks. Uh, early on in the 90s. So. That is great. And um, we have to keep in mind that y- you have to put a lot, a lot of hours of hard work into establishing your fundamental abilities. And then you're free Yeah, within the constraints, as you spoke about, but you're free to not think about it. Like if you try to play golf after a lesson, right, right after a lesson, forget it, because you're thinking about everything except... Yogi Berra said I can't think and hit at the same time (laughs) We'll be right back after this Hey everyone It's Brian and Andrea again The hosts of the Bass Pairs podcast Did you know that about 50 million years ago The concentration of atmospheric carbon dioxide Was nearly 9 times what it is now? But that doesn't mean We have nothing to worry about right now It does mean that we can look to the past for helpful hints while tackling climate change today. It took more than half a million years and the help of one very small plant to cool the planet to the temperatures we enjoy. And Andrea spoke with a plant scientist right here at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory who hopes to learn from those tiny yet mighty plants. More about that in a bit. Now more with Stephen Asma. Tell me more uh, just the, what lay people would be interested in about reading The Evolution of Imagination. Because, for one thing, you're a terrific writer. You're a very entertaining oh, writer. thank you. Thanks. So, um, I mean, because I've read other stuff you've done. And, you know, I think pe- people would enjoy it. And the, the cover illustration, do you have anything to do with that? No, this I do actually illustrate the book. So all the drawings in it are my own drawings. Yeah. And I have a great love of, of visual art and drawing. And I try to spend time talking about um, what's happening in the imagination when we draw. So I think anybody who draws or is interested in drawing um, would find a lot of good stuff in the book, as well as because I'm a musician, that's a whole other kind of imagination and improvisation. And I think there's actually there's a lot of continuity between those, but also some differences. Um, we think about great imaginative people like Walt Disney, for example, mm-hmm. or the, the great Japanese animator Hayao Miyazaki. And, you know, you could look at that like, oh, isn't that miraculous? They've, you know, Walt Disney in Fantasia has thought up of a, a hippo with a tutu dancing a ballet, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and there's something hilarious about that and very imaginative. Or Hayao Miyazaki has a, a cat, giant cat that's also a bus, and you can ride inside the cat. And so many of our imaginative works are like this. But I try to show that they're not as mystical 
or or bizarre or miraculous as you think, there are certain sort of uh, there's a kind of logic to the imagination, and it in, involves things like combining two images that you've seen before in some novel way, and that is a long way uh, toward a creative creation. Now, I I argue in the book that this happens spontaneously and involuntarily every night you dream because you've got this repository of these images in your head and then somehow while you're asleep, you're pasting them together and mixing them all together and ending up with some weird kind of hybrid creatures. Um, What happens is that that kind of mixing happens in the associational mind, the executive control, the prefrontal cortex can now take this this sort of mishmash of images and then edit it. This is a good one. This is a bad one. Let's put this in a story of some kind. And oftentimes, really creative stuff is just uh, what I call domain crossing. You take something that belongs like in the water, like a fish, and you put it on dry land, and you've got something creative. You take something like a candlestick, and you give it uh, human speech, and you've got some, you know, you've, you've got, got Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. Is that it? Yeah. yeah. But that's, you know, that's the kind of simple, logical adjustment that you're taking one thing, like an inanimate object, and you're giving it some animate property. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you've got something highly imaginative. And that's one of the features of the imagination that I, I want people to appreciate, but also see that they can do. We, they can do that work. It's not so miraculous. Um, I'm trying to think of other examples of this. Uh, you do all kinds of domain crossing like this. Um, one of the things that uh, is really interesting about this is when you create a, a bizarre hybrid, it draws your attention and cultures sort of gather around these things. So early religion yeah. is oftentimes like it's uh, – think about Hinduism, for example, where it's a it's part man and also has an elephant's head and it has a bunch of arms. And, yeah. you know, this is the stuff that imaginative work was some of the earliest cultural formation because we were able to form stories around these images and then form culture around them. I just started laughing if you heard me in the background because I, I was flashing back to uh, an incident with my friend John Rennie, former editor of Scientific American, and we went to uh, Popeye's Chicken and we bought chicken and we were sitting in my car. We had chicken and mashed potatoes and we didn't have any utensils. <laughs> Improvise. And so what I did have in the car were golf tees. <laughs> <laughs> and we wound up eating chicken and mashed potatoes. The the chicken we could just pick up with hand. And we could have done the same with the mashed potatoes, but that would have been gauche. <laughs> so we ate the There's mashed, a limit, yeah. We, we used the golf tees to eat the mashed potatoes. That's great. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit uh, silly and it's also a little bit – it's fun. It was fun. It yeah. made the whole experience more interesting, obviously. Well, you, you tend to improvise better when you have what, what I call resource deficiency. You know, when you're missing the right tool for this job, you are forced to think in a lateral way. And that's one of the, the great things that brings out imaginative and improvisational thinking. If you have a kitchen where you have a device for every single thing, then you're not going to be a very creative chef. Yeah, I was thinking about uh, when I read that part about the resource deficiency. One of the best scenes, I think, in the movie Apollo 13 is when the guys have to improvise the carbon dioxide scrubbers out of the equipment they have at hand. Yeah. 
And it's kind of thrilling to watch them put it together and figure it out and then actually build it and make it work. Oh, that's right. That's the, the sort of MacGyver effect, yeah. you know. And I think um, every field surgeon has to solve these problems too. You know, you don't have the, all the equipment in a nice operating room, but you've got to do this task. So improvisational thinking is really important in things like medicine as well. You tell a story very early in the book about somebody in India looking for a particular medical tool that slices skin incredibly thinly so yeah. that you can do skin grafts. Yeah, and they, uh, she's sort of new to the to this uh, post, and she sa- says, t- turns to her colleagues and says, "I need that device." And the guy just holds up a giant machete, and he just says, "This is your device. <laughs> this is going to do everything you need." And it was a mind blower for her. But that's sort of what you have to do in a resource efficient situation: is you need this sort of sideways thinking. And I I think this makes sense out of early cognition too, because our species would have to solve all kinds of new new problems, especially when you've got, you know, the kind of climate fluctuations that were happening during the development of Homo sapiens. And now there's some interesting uh, neuroscience to suggest that if you put that sort of transcranial magnet, you know, on the prefrontal cortex, you can kind of shut it off. And what they find is that if I, if I do that to you, they've done this test where I do it to like, 10 people, let's say I put the transcranial magnet on their prefrontal cortex and the other 10, I don't do this procedure to. And I ask them to solve some problem they've never seen before. It turns out that people who've had their their sort of executive functions shut off by this transcranial magnet do much better on the creative problem solving. Because their filter is no longer stopping them from going places. Exactly. It's it's not. It's sometimes it could be that the filter is stopping them from going places, but it's also like that's where the sort of routine thinking, the stuff that's worked before, is um, puts you in a kind of box, and if you can deactivate it, um, sort of technically called um, transient hypofrontality, like you turn off that editor then all of a sudden that more associative thinking starts to happen. And that helps people solve problems uh, fresh and in novel ways. Very fun, very interesting to think about. Thinking about your thinking is always... Uh, yeah, be, that's I, right. I didn't mention, I mentioned the uh, cover illustration, but I didn't say what it was. It's a what appears to be a human figure on a bicycle... But instead of a head, they have a light bulb. Yeah, this is a perfect example of like a, a hybrid domain crossing or hybridizing stuff. So the light bulb is a symbol in our culture for an idea. But what's the bicycle supposed to be? I think like if you'll see, the one bicycle is going this way and everyone else is going that oh, way. Oh, I, I missed so that. It's yeah. sort of against the grain. And gotcha. the imaginative person is oftentimes sort of against the status quo or, or not in keeping with uh, with how everybody else is doing it. Or they get eaten by the lion and that's everybody right. else. That's right. They a, were the sacrifice. Right. There's often a good reason why everybody else is running that way. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Maybe you should turn around. So that's the evolution of imagination. That came out last year, 2017. Yeah. And you have a, a new book out that I have not yet seen about religion and its fundamental importance for humanity. Yes. It's a kind of a Darwinian argument for the value of religion. And I'm certainly not the first guy to make that argument. But what's new, I think, in my book is I'm not just saying, well, religion helps people be 
moral or helps them cooperate. Because right, you can do all that without religion. Right, exactly. What I'm arguing is that uh, religion's main uh, function is to provide a kind of system of emotional therapy for people. And historically, that's why it evolved. That's why it continues to stay around. And uh, so I, the book is kind of an – I'm an agnostic, basically. But I, I'm trying to appreciate the way in which religion helps us with our emotional lives. It's therapeutic qualities. I mean, clearly, there is a drive in humans, because so many people have it, to believe in something. Right. So examining it from a scientific point of view, I think, has value. I think so, too. And uh, the new – I guess what's new also is – that I'm looking specifically at affective neuroscience, so emotional neuroscience, the kind of work that uh, Jak Pangsep, the late great Jak Pangsep or Antonio Damasio did by showing there are these emotional pathways in the brain. We know there's a kind of rage circuitry. We know there's a lust circuitry. And, you know, Pangsep thought there were seven of these. And I basically try to, each chapter looks at one of these emotional systems in the brain and tries to show what are the cult religious cultural activities and beliefs that speak to that emotional circuit. From cross-culturally. Yes, cross-culturally. Yeah. So I've done a lot of work, not just in Western religion, uh, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, but also I've, I lived a lot in Cambodia, in China, and feel pretty comfortable with uh, Buddhism and uh, some of the animism there, and try to show... A different way of thinking about religion, not the kind of religion that that um, maybe the new atheists would would be scolding, but really the kind of religion that's that's functioning very well in the developing world. Uh, interestingly, you you have seven, and there are seven deadly sins. Is this <laughs> is this just an accident, or is, is yeah, maybe that's what uh, maybe that's what the great Yak Panksep was thinking of when he when he put it together. Um, it's funny. There are like. Uh, there are sort of hedonic, you know, temptations that we're all drawn to that every good neuroscience could map out by talking about the the ventral tegmental area and how the dopamine spikes in the brain. Yeah. And if you look at religion, in many ways, cross-culturally, what it's trying to do is get you to not, you know, follow your, your hedonistic impulse, mm -hmm. which is craving mm -hmm. and desire. And the it's almost like our de default settings are for, you know, sugar and fat and, you know, as much sex as possible and basically all this kind of like quick fix pleasure. But it's part of the cultural project to get you to resist these because it will undo you, you know, and the social group you're in. Right. So religion helps you to manage your emotions so that the cooperative work will be more effective. And if you have a bunch of hotheads, then the group won't be effective. If you have a bunch of people who are afraid all the time, they won't be effective. What I'm arguing is that religion helps you focus. Uh, it, it calms you down if you're afraid. Um, it, it doesn't automatically give you, you know, liberal uh, values and virtues because sometimes what religion is doing is getting you angry at a certain enemy. And we've seen that through the history of religion and culture. So it's not that the therapies are always making you comfortable or making you feel better. They may not be. What religion does is it also directs some of your defensive, you know, aggression. 
and th- then it has to calm it down again. And so sure enough, you see in the stories and the activities and rituals of religion, these emotional management uh, systems. Right. And any system can be co-opted by somebody with uh, their own uh, agenda. Right. So that you can have religion that obviously gets used in a way that we would find nefarious. Exactly. Um, and again, we're talking about religion from an evolutionary and cultural historical point of view, but also still today. That's right. It, it, these functions uh, haven't gone away. I think they emerged because, you know, prior to living in nation states, we had to survive in lo- larger and larger collectives. And many people have started to point out um, that the axial age religions like Judaism, Hinduism, Christianity, all emerge at a time when we're starting to live increasingly in cities. And so it makes sense that you have to, it's not a mystery that I'm going to try to help my brother if we're blood relations, but if we're living in larger and larger societies, I have to treat you with respect and we have to cooperate. And one of the things religion does is it helps us to see strangers as what we call uh, fictive kin or fictional kin. That's, you know, that's my brother in, in Christ, or that's my brother in Buddhism or whatever. And that allows for larger groups of strangers to actually cooperate better. So I think that's true, but the reason why it works is because of this emotional management story. And that story, I don't think, has gotten much attention yet. One of the reasons uh, that, I, that I wanted to talk to you and to let people know about your books uh, was so that they could have the pleasure of spending time with your brain because (laughs) I've had that pleasure on a number of occasions. This is the first time we've met in person. But I just want to say one reason to read The Evolution of Imagination or what's the religion book called? It's called Why We Need Religion. One reason to read either or both books is so you can spend a few hours with Stephen Asma and his brain. You won't get the whole, <laughs> as we talked about before, the importance of the body in the emotional existence and improvisationally. Right. And obviously it's not, this is actually now written down, so it's set. But you, as the reader, will have, every reader's going to have their own set of stuff they bring in when they read it. So you're going to have a unique experience and you get to spend, you know, four, five, six hours with Stephen Asma, and I, I just highly recommend it. I think you're a really interesting thinker, and you're a really pleasant person to spend time with. <laughs> Very kind. And of you. so I, uh, I really hope that people will check out these books and have themselves a good time and learn stuff too. Thanks for this opportunity, Steve. I appreciate it. I'll be back in a moment. Hey everyone, thanks for sticking around. We were about to hear about a plant that supposedly saved the earth from staying a hothouse climate. It was actually so hot that there were hippos in the Arctic. So, lay it on us, Andrea. What was this plant that changed the world? The plant that seems to have driven so much of this huge change is what you might call pond scum. It covered the Arctic Ocean, soaking up mind-blowing amounts of carbon dioxide. And today, plant scientists are looking to a similar plant called duckweed to help control the climate once again. But we don't have half a million years to do this. Right. But we do have genetic tools. 
Scientists put them to use on Base Pairs, the podcast about the power of genetic information from Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. Find us on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can also check out our coverage of the Parker Solar Probe on its way to the sun. It's going to be the fastest-moving spacecraft in history, reaching speeds of 430,000 miles per hour. If you'd like to go from New York to L.A. in 20 seconds, that's the speed for you. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.